Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again for a new episode of Red Envelope. This time, I'm joining you guys from Tokyo, Japan, where I've been attending the FinSum Conference, as a FinTech and RecTech Summit, hosted by Nikkei and the FSA, the Financial Services Agency in Japan. And joined with me on the podcast today is my partner in crime, Brightly Limer. So the conference this year is the fourth year in the making, and the theme of it is in search of new sources for growth. So as expected, a lot of the themes that run in the conference this year centers around what else can banking and financial services do? What other new business models can they explore? What new customer segments? Should they be going after? How do they reinvent themselves, if you will, or as our friend Jim Aruz would say, how do they disrupt themselves? So, a few of the themes that we thought were quite interesting is around fintech and aging,、um, with Japan being the ultra-aged society in the world. They also talked about the role of data information bank. Talked about future payments,、um, as Japan is so a fairly Cash-heavy society.、Um, also talked about innovation in in banking and financial services in Japan and what else they can do. So let's start exploring the different themes、uh, for a moment. So fintech and aging, as we mentioned, Japan is one of the ultra-aged society in the world. So right now, today, one in four Japanese is 45 and older. By 2050. That share is projected to climb to 36% of the total population. So not only that people are rapidly aging, which you know, if you ask us, is a natural phenomenon, it's biology, but it's also the the challenge, if you will, is amplified by the fact that there just aren't enough people from outside of the country. To be able to come in and help from a workforce perspective, to come in and help to caregive from caregiving perspective, taking care of the people that are getting older.、Um, Brett, you were here、um, a couple of months ago, along with some of our friends, on a sort of, I guess, learning tour and and trying to、um, being invited by Japan and looking at what else they can be doing.、Um, you know, how do they look at innovating and in, in banking? Is that something that you guys touched on as well on that particular、um, week? Yeah, I mean the, the the trip that I took out was part of Accenture's work with Tokyo Metropolitan Government, and so when when I first arrived, I, I looked at、um, the physical nature of Tokyo and how it had changed since I had been there decades earlier. When you go to places like Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong and Hangzhou and Singapore and other places, when you arrive at the airport, you get the sense of physical transformation. Tokyo is different. There's a lot of、um, physical change, I suppose, but it's taken decades to do so. As opposed to going to Beijing or Shanghai, if you're gone for two or three years and you come back, it's almost like a completely different city. And so, when you think about, you know, Japan, it's the third largest economy in the world. The government is concerned not just about aging and other issues, but it's also concerned about taking back its place in the financial sector. To win back this position of a top global financial city in Asia, compared to Singapore and Hong Kong and others,、um, my trip was really spending a lot of time with both startups and the government、um, municipality that is trying to build 
the ecosystem out to be ready for the future. So they work a lot on public-private partnerships, um, very similar to what we do here in Silicon Valley. It's an ecosystem innovation driven by venture partnerships, corporates, VC firms, um, research and academic institutions like Tokyo University. So they're really, really looking to you know, embrace new technologies, um, whether it be IoT or AI, robotics, fintech. And they're really, really challenged, though, by the type of market that they have. It's very, very homogeneous. And to bring in startups, um, if you can survive in Japan, you could probably make your startup work anywhere. That is an interesting statement. I did hear someone mention that yesterday too. It's um, it's a very tight knit community. It's also one that I wouldn't really say closed door, but it, it's um, they are very and a conservative is not a good word either. I'm just at a complete loss of word. But they describe it to like you say they embrace new technology. They're curious. They're very curious with what's going on outside of their ecosystem. But oftentimes you'll almost feel like they're hesitant, if you will, to adopt something unless until they're completely sure this is a direction that everyone wants to go. So it's it's a little different than, you know, just throw stuff on the wall and see what stakes. Where I think some people describe this as they'll all go and look and then they'll investigate a little bit more and then they'll investigate a little bit more more and then just right when you're like, okay, let's get going and boom, they would just all be right there. Um, so it's a t slightly different attitude um, or culture too, even um, a little bit more cautious approach, but you know, sometimes cautious is, is not a bad thing. Well, one of the, the visits that I had there was with um, Takaya Harai, the Japanese Minister for Information Technology Science. Uh, and space policy. And, you know, when you sit down with someone like that and you understand kind of the the structural changes that he is trying to invoke uh, and the type of partnerships they want to do with sort of non-Japanese entities, but still retain Japanese culture and everything that they do with technology. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that he does is he listens to external startup pitches in his office every week. Um, and so when you do that at sort of the top echelons of government, you're eventually going to have some of those solutions start to bubble up. So financial innovation is the same way. Um, when you think about the market, um, it's really dominated by four large banks. And, you know, the, the Mitsubishi financial group, the Sumitomos of the world, the Mizuho's, um, and then you've got this Japan post bank, but it's, it's interesting. You know, the, the, economic situation there's with the third largest economy, you have 200 different banking institutions. And in that sense, it's it's very similar or more similar to sort of the, the EU and every single country there where, yes, it's dominated by three or four players, but it doesn't have this long tail like the U.S. does. The U.S., of course, you know, has almost 11,000 institutions. And part of the sort of mess we're in with being behind is because you have to sort of drag all of those institutions along with the innovation that happens. Um, so they don't have, you know, that sort of legacy to stop them from innovating. It's more so, do they have a market that people from the outside want to come into? Well, interesting, you you mentioned that. I think the other thing I would add on to, too, if you look at, you know, comparing U.S. And, and Japan, U.S. also has 
let's just say a spaghetti of regulatory bodies <laughs> that we that we need to contend with um and and japan doesn't have that complexity right but so let's touch upon innovation a little bit you mentioned um you know how how the market is and it's dominated by banks and then previously we also talked about the cultural aspects of japan one of the themes that they talked quite a bit about is how do they propel japan into a more cashless society right they, they talk about how do we get to 80 percent cashless which is interesting you know it was my last few days in here this is the first time i actually stepped outside of narita airport it reminds me a lot of hong kong in the sense that it's a very cosmopolitan city um, there's all kinds of technology, if you will, that's being used. People embrace robotics and automation and, and all that. But yet, they also embrace cash, right? Just like in Hong Kong, where there's Octopus Card, there is the Apple Pay. Um, we still carry cash around. And, and in here, it was similar. Uh, yesterday, I was in a taxi, and um, we had a lot of trouble trying to, to get um, a credit card payment through. And... You know, and then I remember somebody told me, yeah, we still use a lot of cash. Um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, the need to move societies away from cash. But personally, I still think cash is interesting, right? Because cash is something that is anonymous, is something that you hold, is physically you can hold it. And, and there is some, some, something about, you know, the sense of security when you're actually holding cash. What, what is your sense in there? Well, if you think about, you know, the, the one company that would likely be the entry point for a cashless or more cashless society in Japan, it's probably Line. So Line, a Korean company, uh, or at least mostly owned by a Korean parent, is sort of the WeChat or Alipay of Japan. And when you, you think about Line and what they initially were, it was just a payment vehicle like WeChat or Alipay, but it's gone beyond that. And I think that's part of what you have seen at FinCEN, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and so this um, idea that they're going beyond just payments um, mm-hmm. is something that you know I think they will likely do and have success in. Yeah, I, I think so too. It's, it's just, you know, it, um, we talk a lot about why do we want to move away from cash? You know, obviously, aside from the, the operating efficiency or the cost of, of ha- uh, having cash. Um, and then we talk about the need to move towards digital in, in a lot of things. Um, but I, I don't know, it just it, it fascinates me everywhere we go. You know, people are talking about digital payments, about, you know, why we really shouldn't have cash. Cash is evil. Um, and, and all of that, I don't know. I am old fashioned. I still carry cash around. Um, although I was desperately looking for places with Apple pay. <laughs> um, well, and that's, that's, that's the thing that's kind of interesting. It's like, so Japan is the only other major economy where the iPhone is more prevalent, right? So mm-hmm. it's 45% in the U S and it's, it's upwards of, I think 38 or 39% in Japan and Apple Pay and the market in Japan is, is one way that people will start using digital currencies more often. Um, but if you you know think about 
the way that the Japanese economy has evolved over the last 20 to 30 years, recently they've had some pretty good economic growth. I think the last quarter was close to 2% in terms of GDP growth. But they have gone through a lot of deflation. They've got through a lot of sort of economic um, sort of lethargy uh, over the past 20 plus years since the early 80s. And that was after this huge boom that they had in the 60s and 70s, where they were basically the China and the growth engine of the world. And so, you know, when you when you think back of the way that Japan has changed, their economy has gone very much in a, in a similar arc, but now it's beyond sort of where China is in terms of its you know, place in uh, being a manufacturer versus being a creator of um, new types of goods, whether it be artificial intelligence or certainly robotics, a lot of automation. Um, a lot of the, the visits that we had at startups um, when I visited with Accenture was to companies that were automating things. And they want to take the Olympics in 2020 and demonstrate that Japan is the leader in these type of technologies, whether it be self-driving cars or whether it be ways that um, people will be able to be taken care of by robots and other sources of automation. So that's what's really interesting to me when we talk about you know, cash and digital, that there are physical things that they're doing uh, that they're trying to lead the world in that are probably just as significant and to me, you know, the, the Japanese um, people were like, well, it's cash works, right? How we make payments today works. So why do we want to change? But, but again, exactly. go back to line and what you go back to line and, and what you learned. It's, it's, it's trying to combine banking and other services. So. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. It's trying to be the, the super app, right? Which is the model that we have seen in Southeast Asia, as well as you mentioned in China, they're trying to get into PFM, investing, insurance, um, and what have you, everything under under one roof. There is something to be said from a consumer perspective, um, if it's a brand that you recognize, that you trust, and to be able to centralize all of your daily activities, right, un under one. But there is also something to be said about having individual companies being really good at what they do and staying with that right so so it is a difference in models if you will if you see in the west you have the facebook the google and the apple and and the amazon and then over here you have the super app where they're trying to combine all of those functions um plus more and under one i don't think there's necessarily a good or bad or you know this is supposed to be the way to go versus you know this is better it's it's a it's a matter of how different ecosystems are set up is a matter of how um, the, the trust that people have with those brands, with the entities. So it's, um, it's evolving, um, but it's interesting to watch from the side. Um, you touched a little bit on, on robotics. Um, let's go back to, to one of my favorite topics for a second, um, aging, right? 
when we when I got off the the plane, I remember going through the airport. The first thing I saw was was a robot talking to me. I had absolutely no idea what it was saying, but it was flashing. It was friendly. It was nice. It brings back to something that we always talk about when we think about robotics and automation. Growing up in Asia and obviously in Japan as well, robotics is look at some is being seen as something that's augmenting human abilities, the way we do things, right? Um, in terms of Caregiving, for example, is something that is needed because of the fact they don't have enough people, because of the fact that there are more people getting older. So a lot of the focus on aging in Japan is about how do you leverage technology to help take care of the people that they have today, uh, you know, aging well, aging gracefully, giving them uh, a quality, good quality of life that they can aspire to as they get older. Um, Whereas I think in the U.S., for example, when we talk about aging, when we talk about, you know, what can technology do, aside from the let's just find ways to live forever and forever, um, the, the anti-aging theme that I'm not totally a big fan of, a lot of the focus end up being we're getting older and we're broke. So what are we going to do? Um, there, there's a, there's a difference in, in the themes and the things that, that we think about, that we look at, um, which, which was, it was something that, that stands out to me. Well, I mean, when you talk about, um, companies that are focused on aging, um, there were a number of companies that I remember seeing, um, that were focused on helping the Japanese economy get ready for what is inevitable for them. Um, there was a company that had come from France that was there embedded sort of in the ecosystem that I had met called Here and Now. And they're doing things like building artificial intelligence-based smart shoes for Alzheimer's patients to understand what they're doing and where they're going and understand where they are. Um, and there's an awful lot of that because, I mean, what other you know country has an extinction clock? Um, Japan and their population will face extinction on August 14th, 3766. And it's like, oh, that's so far away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so it's, it's, it's a number that, that is always changing, but because of their birth rate and, you know, the, the, the fact that they're not replacing um, the, the people with folks from outside of Japan, it's a very, very uh, homogeneous population. The fertility rate, is under that 2.07 number. It's like 1.4, uh, and they're not allowing, you know, external workers to come in to help with people that are aging. And they're trying systematically and through policy to offer incentives and bring more ways that people could get visas. And but, you know, what do you do when you have one and a half percent immigration? I mean, people talk about immigrants coming to the U.S. It's 5% in the United Kingdom. It's 17% in the United States. But there's almost no non-Japanese in Japan. So how do you bring startups in to take care of this population? How do you get a sense that in the next 40 years, they're going to go from 126 million to 87 million? That's dramatic. So something needs to be done. Although I do appreciate um, a, a one thing, you know, we had talked quite a bit about too is I think it's the um, attitudes that we have towards seniors. Um, 
I, I am hopeful, at least in, in Japan's case, because of the fact that they recognize something needs to be done, because of the fact that they actually respect the seniors, uh, the, the older adults, I would say, I wouldn't even go that far saying seniors because older adults, um, and, and, the, and the attitude towards them and thinking about we need to do something to help our society, to help them. Um, I'm hopeful that, you know, they will be and they will remain in the forefront of being able to find innovative solutions to take care of the um, population that's getting older. Um, you know, they, they stress, I think in Asian culture in general, but also in Japan, they stress a lot about, you know, taking care of your parents, taking care of your grandparents. They don't see it as, you know, a burden, if you will. It, it's, it's part of the culture, it's part of the family. Yeah, well, I mean, you have almost 30% of the population that are 65 and older. And when you when you walk around, everybody seems very healthy, they're active, uh, they have an amazing food system, probably one of the best, and there are very few even in the EU that I think would probably stand up to uh, how healthy their food system is. So healthy lifestyle, the, one of the longest um, sort of longevity cultures in the world. Um, it's also the only place where they have a national public holiday called Respect for the Aged Day or Kira Nohai. Uh, and that's how they honor their citizens that are older. And you know the, the beauty of a culture that embraces the wisdom of age is one that will not only thrive for all people, but it will find and is finding um, all sorts of ways to help people as they age. And I think it's going to simply trickle down when you talk about leveraging artificial intelligence and robotics and automation and, you know, self-moving vehicles and these types of things to include and increase mobility. Um, these are ways that, you know, Japan is going to lead the world in what will be and what is becoming a global phenomenon. And the fact that we are shrinking and we will eventually as a, global population slow down to the point where we may actually see a little bit of a global decline. And so again, there's many, many lessons in Japan. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, one of the things that we talked on stage um, when I was on the panel talking about FinTech and aging is in the foreseeable future, let's say, you know, in the next five to 10 years, how do we think or who do we think will be able to step up to the plate that can create and sustain a host of services that's catered to the aging population, right? Because if you think about the needs of people as we get older, we all do get older, um, there are many, many aspects of it. There is the ensuring you are staying safe when you're um, living independently in your home. There's the aspect of helping and make sure that you are also financially secure. There is the aspect of, you know, making sure that you do not get financially exploited because that's, you know, one of the things that impact a lot of people. So if you think about the aspects of services that's needed around someone that's getting older, it touches many, many aspects of health as well as wealth. And so the, the, the question and discussion came to, do we think that's something that a bank will play? 
because of the fact that they have a lot of the information on individuals. Do we think this is something that fintech and health tech startups will play because of the fact that they are quote unquote more innovative when it comes to thinking about different solutions? Or do we think this is something that it will be a combination of both or just a whole new different player? Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you talk about not just, you know, aging and financial services, but financial services and health and health and wellness and how they could have intertwine and how increasingly the importance of data is becoming there. Um, we really, you know, when you look at sort of three general paths about data, you sort of have this idea of uh, open and controlled, which I would say the EU and the United Kingdom would fall under um, then you have, you know, a, a regulatory environment around data and financial data, especially being defined. And I would put um, Japan alongside the U.S. in that sort of bucket. And then you have um, an economy like China, which I would say is unbridled but muddled in the way that they're looking at data, because there's so many ways that China is sort of extending the use of personal data, uh, not just financially, but physically and uh, tracking just about everything. And so it goes from a very closed system and a very controlled system to one that is very, very open and sort of wild, wild west. Um, in, in terms of Japan, they're sort of in this middle place. And I think that, you know, there's a openness to leveraging personal information, uh, but I think it will be more, more controlled than what we're seeing in places like China and probably less uh, restricted as it is in places like the EU. And you found something interesting, I believe, um, around information banks at the conference. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it was brand new to me as they were talking about uh, something that they're trying. Actually, it's fairly new. Fairly new um, is information bank is essentially creating a way for people for consumers to willingly share the data and return being compensated for it um, you know if you look at for example what we have in the west the facebook the google and, and all of that model you are paying nothing in return of services and so in essence you are the product because you are providing the data whether you like it or not if you're using the service but you don't get compensated for it, right? And then the question comes to who owns the data, whose data is it, and what are these big techs doing with my data um, from both the business perspective as well as, you know, just what are they doing? What are they snooping? And what can they find out from us? Whereas in here, when they're talking about information bank, is consumers knowingly give consent to the use of their data um, and in return to get something for it. Um, it's it's interesting if you think about it. I was talking I was talking about it with somebody, and they say, and it brought up an interesting point that I didn't think about. When you have all these consumers willingly provide their data to a central organization to store and for banks and and all these other organizations to use to tap into, from a cybersecurity perspective, right? It creates some sort of a honeypot. For people to go after because everything is centralized um again this is this is something i guess is fairly new for them so it remains to be seen i like that concept of it because we always talk about as consumers how do we control what we give and what do we get out from it um so at least it's it's uh, an attempt 
I, I think that the centralization versus decentralization of data and personal data uh, is interesting because when you look at Silicon Valley and you look at China, it's very divergent uh, in terms of the way that you think about data being stored and being collected. You know, you think about Facebook and the data that they collect. You think about Google and Apple and others and the data they collect and sort of their policies and public um, sort of gaps around data. And then you look at China where, you know, data is being shared between corporates and apps and the government. And, you know, you think that it's not happening uh, in the U.S. and the EU. But again, to your point, when it's centralized and that data is put into one place, uh, it becomes a target. So decentralization of data is interesting in terms of the way that you can control it. This conversation, though, about the information bank makes me think of something that, that I remember from the past uh, Back in the fall of 2012, um, at a, a Cybos conference, the Inutribe portion of SWIFT launched what they called the digital asset grid. And that was, again, um, around the information bank. It was an idea about personalized data going into a centralized um, database that the consumer controlled. And this idea of the consumer being in control of every aspect of data that they choose to connect so if you think about it, this would be a way that banks could tap into a broader network of personal data in order to make financial decisions or insurance decisions or just about anything that your money flows through. And the idea, again, seven years ago, was something in a lot of ways, you know, sort of pre-cloud. Uh, it was pre-centralization of private data and the way that the EU thinks about it. And it, it's it's something that really needs to be considered because I think if you can, as a consumer, control and establish relationships around this data to make sure that there's value exchanged and it's not, I'm going to give up my location in order to have a better math experience. These are things like I want to secure my health data or I want to secure my day-to-day -day financial data or the way that my house um, heats and cools itself. These are all aspects of personal and private data that should be sort of in a way to share within a platform like that. So again, I think the information bank idea is, is not necessarily new. It's, it's more so that our abilities to actually launch something around it and provide value, that's what's new to me. which then potentially can lead to what you say, innovation um, in, in banking, in financial services, what can we do with it? Um, and that is a central theme uh, you know, of, of this week in here is looking for new sources of growth, looking for new sources of opportunities. What else can we do for the sector and what else can we do for the, for the consumers? Um, SBI group did a great presentation. Most of it was in Japanese, but you know, thankful for a translator that talked about a lot of the investment that they have um, in in the startup space, right, to stir up uh, different diversity of thoughts in 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 the space. And one of the ones that they touched on was WeFox, which our friend Spiros um, is is an advisor on. So there is definitely a lot of momentum from the perspective of let's find out where it makes sense to stimulate growth, to stimulate changes, and let's look at how we can get there. Um, 
there, there was a saying that somebody said that stuck with me. They say Japan is overbanked, but it is functionally underbanked. That that was a very interesting statement, and and I think it's uh, it's to the point, right? And so the question becomes, what else uh, can financial services industry do for the consumers in Japan and beyond? Well, I mean, when you when you think about financial services, whether it's in Japan or you know, sort of the influences that will change their economy, um, they're sort of facing this unprecedented demographic shift, and I think they're they're more than rising over the last several decades to approach ways to address it. Um, aging itself is not homogenous, uh, so the societies and the way that they address questions around longevity won't be either. But there's so many lessons to learn. Um, from Japan and from the Japanese people. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch um, a both physical and sort of transformational uh, in terms of the way that uh, financial services are going to change in Japan. Uh, there's an awful lot of things that they're trying to do. And I think that the one lesson to be learned is that they're not only open for business, but they're embracing changes from outside. Absolutely. It is called the land of the rising sun after all. So I think that's it for today. We'll, we'll wrap up and uh, thank you again for you all to be joining with us as we should chat about FinTech and banking and innovation in Japan. Thanks so much for listening in. Thank you.